The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, the Tone Factory Recording Studio in Las Vegas, Moonshot.com t-shirt designs now with a ton of vintage Vegas creations. We're also brought to you by Mr. Antenna and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. Fifty Shades of Grey, the erotic best-selling novel read by Gilbert Gottfried. My inner goddess has stopped dancing and is staring too, open-mouthed and drooling slightly. Famed voice actor Gilbert Gottfried gives a reading that can only be described as sensual. Is this wrong? But is it erotic? It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. Well, the incredibly politically incorrect Gilbert Gottfried, you know him from the celebrity roasts, not the least of which included Donald Trump, his voice work on Aladdin and the Affleck commercials, and much, much more. Gilbert, welcome to The Fake Show. First of all, I have to say that I really enjoyed your interpretation, your reading that you did of Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, was that a college humor production? Uh, oh yes, yes, it was. <laughs> it was Fifty Shades the way it was supposed to have been. Right? Yeah. Much. <laughs> right. And that must have really gotten you a lot of chicks, I suppose. Uh, oh, oh yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you can hear that still on like. I don't know, on the internet. Look up Gilbert Gottfried, Fifty Shades of Grey. It really is funny. I, seriously, I went through it a couple of times. It's hysterical. Yeah. I remember seeing you on an episode, this goes back a few years, of The Cosby Show. And I think that, I believe that you played a car salesman, if I'm not oh, mistaken. yes. Yes. I, that, that was way back when you could brag that you worked with Bill Cosby. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. How did that role come to you? How, how did that uh, happen for you? It was uh, very... Uh, I, I, when I was on uh, Thick of the Night... Right. I, yeah, the Alan Thick's talk show. Alan Thick was being advertised that he was going to knock Carson off the air... Right. And now Carson's not on the air anymore, so it worked. <laughs> and, and so it was a horrible show. But uh, someone had said to me that Bill Cosby actually thought I was funny yeah. on that. And then after uh, it went off the air, I, uh, a while later I got these, this, I, they filmed me for MTV. And they would chop it up and show me throughout the day. It's just some, they called me in, I improvised a bunch of stuff. They chopped it up and would show it during the day saying I was MTV's general manager. All right. And that played a lot. And then I got a call, like they want me to come in and audition for an episode of the Cosby Show. So I showed up there. And the guy said, I'm not sure, uh, Bill said he wanted that guy who's in the MTV spots. And I said, that's me. And uh, <laughs> uh, that, that's how I got it. He just, he was a fan. Wow. He didn't invite you back to his place after the taping? or <laughs> <laughs> He gave me some pills, <laughs> I remember. Right, right. <laughs> 
You know, I seem to remember that you were just a kid. I mean, really just a kid, maybe 15 or so when you did your first, like every other comic, when you did your first open mic night. Oh, yeah. I was I was 15 first time I got up on a stage. Yeah. Yeah. Just one of those open mic things. And uh, yeah, I don't know what the hell was going through my head. Are you at an age when you're when you're 15 where you're just too dumb to to be nervous about it? Maybe. I, yeah, I I've always said uh, what got me in the business and what kept me there was stupidity. <laughs> it was like I was too stupid to know like what I'm gonna go up on a st- I'll make a living in show business. You know that didn't make any sense. And you know you're not thinking in terms of the odds of making it or anything like that. You know, you're just dumb at that age. (laughs) It must have been very exciting, though, for a 15-year-old kid. Uh, Yeah, it was was exciting and scary and weird. Through the years, you've done all these great roasts. I I really love them. You're not by any chance involved in the upcoming Rob Lowe roast, are you? Uh, No, I'm not on that one. But, um, yeah, it's been an hour bunch of these roasts. Uh, Bob Saget, Joan Rivers, Roseanne, Donald Trump, uh, yeah. uh, David Hasselhoff. Am I the only one, Gilbert, who thinks that Trump is trying way too hard to be... It's almost like he's the love child of Howard Stern and Morton Downey Jr. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what... I mean, part of his success is that He's like so politically incorrect, right? That I and I think like so many people are so tired of being politically correct that they don't care if Trump goes out there and says, "Let's uh, drown a basket of puppies." You'd go, "Oh, okay, that sounds good." Yeah. <laughs> well, you for one have to have to understand where he's coming from in terms of being politically incorrect. I mean, you've you've never backed away from the controversial jokes. I mean, anyone who has heard, you know, or watched your DVDs or seeing some of your comments on Twitter, the social media platform forms. You get a lot of heat sometimes when you say certain comments, but it's really at this point has to be expected, right? Oh, yeah. Un- unless it becomes very, you know, people want to use it as a convenient way to get rid of me. Yeah. They can act shocked. Does the social platform world, is that something that really is good for you in terms of telling jokes? Have you adjusted and that's something that you really take advantage of now? Or is that something that doesn't necessarily, you know, do it for you? I mean, I'll put you, I, what, what I've been doing for a while now, ever since the whole thing with the tsunami outrage. Right. Uh, it was that I'll put up jokes that are the most uh old, innocent uh, children's jokes, you know, like, uh, you know, basically, why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? And then I'll put in an apology following it and say, (laughs) I apologize to any chickens I may have offended. You know, I would be remiss in not asking you the, the SNL year that you were on in 1980. Was there almost a feeling from the critics, even before the, that season aired, how dare you do this show after the original cast had left? It was. That, that's one where reviews and articles 
were all over the place and comments on TV before the show even aired because it was it was a how dare you. It was basically like if in the middle of Beatlemania you said, well, John, Paul, George, and Ringo are going to be leaving and we've got these four other schmucks <laughs> and uh, we want you to just cheer for them the same way. Right. And now, I mean, like for years, I mean, Saturday Night Live now is like, it seems like the cast changes in between commercial breaks. Yeah. But back then, the cast's a different cast. How dare they? Yeah, and was Lorne Michaels, I know that he had taken a break here and there. Was he still, was he there that year? or, or And if he was, was he kind of distant at that point? Uh, Lorne Michaels, I I didn't see around there. He he just took a complete break. Like, he wanted nothing to do with any of it. And um, so when I was there, the producer was Jean Demanian. And then when she was fired, they uh, got uh, Dick Ebersole, who fired me and a few other people. You know, I love your I, your voice work as legend. I love your uh, voice work in Aladdin. Was there room for improvising there with you and Robin Williams in the same room? Well, that that's a funny thing, that I always hear stories about people who remember me and Robin Williams on the mic going nuts together. And I never ran into him once. Really? While making a laugh. <laughs> I, I would, he's one of those people I'd always bump into at the comedy clubs and yeah. we talk. And we even went on stage a bunch of times and improvised. But we never worked together on Aladdin. And, um, but yeah, they, they were very open as far as you could improvise. And I'll, a lot of times I'd improvise stuff and they'd laugh and then go, okay, remember, this is a family film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not going to use that take. It was extremely funny, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really like your podcast a lot, and uh, I'm wondering how did that happen to you? Was that something that was pitched to you, or were you looking for something like that to do celebrity interviews? I mean, I I still don't quite understand what a podcast is. <laughs> it's one of those millions of things in show business that, like, the minute I thought I had a vague understanding of how show business worked, it all changed. Yeah. Podcast web series and all that. And my my co-host on the show, uh, Frank Santopadre, I, I knew him because he was a writer. He used to work for The View. And he had the same interest as me. I have a bunch of friends who love old Hollywood and trivia. And um, then when the podcast came around, I think it was my wife who said, why don't you have him as your co-host and just talk about old Hollywood? That's what you love talking about. I thought it was never going to work because no one knows these people and it didn't matter. They, they love hearing from them. Yeah, I do, too. I know your show has taken off. It's popular. And you get great, quirky guests like Stuart Margolin, who, if anyone doesn't know him, he was on the Rockford Files. He was the kind of squinty-eyed guy. And I 
calls him the leering guy. Yeah, <laughs> I know. He made a career out of that, right? Yeah. But it's it's amazing because you get out of him how many hundreds and hundreds of things that he has done. There there are so many movies and TV shows that he's been involved in. Yeah, I, I love talking to these actors. I mean, I love the old stars, too. But I also uh, particularly love talking to these actors who are, are of that oh, that guy category, where you just look at them and you don't know their name, but you go, oh, yeah, yeah, he's always a cop or something. Well, you know, I interviewed, here's another quirky one, I interviewed the the guy who played Gilbert Bates on Leave It to Beaver. And it turns out that he has led this incredibly interesting life. He ended up being this uh, producer for PBS documentaries, but through his career had little run-ins with people like Steve McQueen, and he was there during Black Panther protests, and he was just one of those Forrest Gump kind of guys who was all over the place and had a really interesting life, as it turns out. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, that's why I think your podcast is is so interesting and it's become very popular at this point. And, and it's amazing sometimes that the people who will say yes to it, like Dick Van Dyke, was an amazing one and, and, and so open to just have fun with it. Right. And I sang two duets with Dick Van Dyke. Very nice, yeah. And you come away thinking, man, I'm so glad he was as nice a guy as I thought he would be. So. Oh, yeah. That's great. Of course, go to gilbertgodfrey.com. It's a great website, and I'm a big fan of your book, Rubber Balls and Liquor, and I'm hoping that's still in print somewhere that we can still... No, oh. get it on my <laughs> website, but you could also get my Dirty Joke DVD on gilbertgodfrey.com and my Twitter, in case you get offended by anything I've said <laughs> in this interview today. <laughs> and the podcast is great. A pleasure talking to you. Always nice to uh, catch up with you, Gilbert. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you. All right, buddy. Take care. Yes, no one sells himself better than Gilbert Gottfried, and really, his podcast is worth checking out, if for no other reason than his great laugh. For now, I'm Jim Tofty. Thank you once again for tuning into The Fake Show. I will talk to you next time. Take The Fake Show with you at thefakeshow.com, SoundCloud, and at iTunes. 